Michelle, this afternoon, we're going to talk about ChatGPT. And I think that everybody's talking about ChatGPT. It seems like that. Everywhere I go, in every conversation, there's somebody saying something about how a student had used it or they themselves have been playing around with it and they're finding it super interesting and it seems like they're running into it all over the place. Mm. I'm finding it's coming at me from several different directions and I'm needing to maybe just get my head around it and understand whether I need to be trying to push it back or whether I need to draw it closer and figure out how to use it in my teaching at the university, in my work as a researcher and a teacher. Yeah. We had a conversation a few weeks ago with some experts in the area. Yeah, we had Dr. Alec Kiros from the U of R and we had Josh Seeland from ACC, from Assiniboine Community College. And I felt like they did a really good job of talking through the scope of what you were saying, like the, should I push this away or should I pull it closer? Because they aren't saying on either extreme, this is gonna revolutionize the world and it's amazing and we have to adopt it at every turn. And they're not saying, this is terrible, shut it down. They're really nuanced in how they approached mm -hmm. it. And I really mm -hmm. liked that, I think that was. I also liked the after conversation and I wished it was part of the yeah, podcast because they listed a bunch of different AI apps yeah. that I've tried out and that's really interesting. And yeah. maybe we could tag some of those yeah, in I'll the put them podcast underneath. Yeah. so that other people could. It's really useful. And it seems like on all my social media feeds too, everywhere there's always a new thing coming out. Like just a couple days ago, it was like, hey, I can create your presentation for you, upload your paper or your book chapter, or whatever you're presenting on and AI will take the big pieces and generate a presentation for you. Like I have all these kinds of curiosities around this. Interesting. It seems to me like all the companies are yes. coming out with an AI tool. Like I'm noticing that on my social media yes. as well. Like each of the yes. social media platforms is has an AI tool now. Yeah, and there's concerns around it too. I had shared that piece about the presentation one and a colleague was like, yeah, but who owns that data then? Or who, where does that go? Where does it get stored? And so I think it's that, I think there was some of that in our conversation too. So the listeners will hear a little bit about that. Too. And just like this semester, like in the winter semester, yeah. we've had several examples on campus of students who used it in their final assignment. We're learning more and more about it. To begin with, I was worried that we would never know if they had used ChatGPT or not. Yeah. And now I know that ChatGPT saves everything that it's written and you can ask ChatGPT about it. Yes. Yeah, I didn't know that either until recently. But it makes sense, right? It's a learning mm -hmm. learning tool or it's learning as it goes. So of course it's saving and learning as it goes. I hadn't connected those dots that it would remember what it had generated for mm -hmm. you. Yeah. So I can't wait for everyone to hear the discussion with mm -hmm. Alec Kuros, especially yeah. from the University of Regina. I've followed him for quite a long time and I always trust his knowledge. Yeah, we had him on the podcast a few years ago. We too, did. Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah, he was here when we were in our early podcast days. Anyways, it'll be a good conversation. Yeah, let's yeah. get to it. All right. ChatGPT listed three episodes and I searched later and these episodes did exist but totally fabricated the quotes. And they were really compelling quotes and they would have been excellent if they were real. That 
the process. I think fact checking, we have to remember that ChatGPT isn't a knowledge model, it's a language model. So it's good at writing things, it's not necessarily good at fact checking things. As we do this on a larger scale, like more and more of us are learning the use of something like AI for generating lesson plans or for generating syllabus or whatever the case is. If we do this on a large scale, are we going to lose some of our individuality or some of the things that make us us? Having artificial intelligence provide practice questions and explain things in different ways, whether it's metaphors, you know, however a learner might best respond to, I think that's a great use of it. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jackie Kirk, and I am in the Department of Leadership and Educational Administration at Brandon University, I would like to welcome you to Leaning In and Speaking Out, the Research Connection podcast. This afternoon, we're talking about AI and chat GPT. Hi everyone, my name is Michelle Lam. I'm the director of BU Cares and the co-host of the podcast. And I'm really interested in this. I'm hearing a lot of conversation, both from teachers and profs about well, how ChatGPT is going to change their practice. Yeah, I'm Josh Zeeland. I'm the manager of library services at Assiniboine Community College here in Brandon, Manitoba. And we have, along with the traditional academic library services that you'd expect, we have a copyright and academic integrity in our portfolio. So this is definitely a multifaceted interest. And I'll introduce myself as well. Okay. My name is Alec Koros. I'm the director for the Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Regina. And this is this topic has been of incredible interest to to faculty and students in the last little while. I've never had so many requests to do workshops from faculty that are scared, I guess, in some ways they're uncertain in terms of what comes next to how to detect it, how to change their assignments. So there's been tons of questions around this and it'll be interesting to hear what you have to, you all have to say about this because it is really quite emerging. It's you know, only been out since November-ish, so uh, things have changed quickly. It's a great topic and it's interesting. When I first heard about it, I thought it would take a little while for it to become in mainstream media, but it didn't. It took off right away. And so I'm interested in hearing what both of you are thinking about it. I've tried it out a little bit in my classroom and talk to his students about it. So the first question, AI and chat GPT has teachers ruffled up and especially at the university, we heard lots of sort of discomfort with the possibility that students would be able to use it. Is this the end of the classic essay as our way to evaluate students? And is that a bad thing? often wonder if we use too much text-based evaluation, especially at in the university level, like at, in the grad level, especially. I can start with that one. Yeah, it's a tough question. Ob obviously, the essay has been, uh, it's the one reliable assignment that most faculty members can lean on any single time. There's always room for an essay in a course or multiple essays, but I, I think it's not necessarily the end of the essay, but end of the essay in the way that we've been doing them in terms of essentially assign, assigning topics, letting students get at it, and then just forgetting about the entire process. 
the process of writing will be much more important in the coming years for sure. The process of transparency in that writing is going to be really important as well. I've heard many faculty members, English faculty and otherwise, speak about how they're going to really use ChatGPT as a co-pilot, an intelligent assistant to, to help them through the outline process, to help them generate maybe even the first draft, to go from the first draft and to improve it. But some of the improvements around it, like you have to sort of know what you need to improve an essay and some of the things that I've generated so far. Just the other day I generated, I asked chat GBT something like, I think I asked, I was looking for a metaphor to describe from a fictional, from a, like a fictional character that could be used as a metaphor that would help us understand how humans could learn from chat GBT. And it sent me to Star Trek's data. And but that was not totally unpredictable. But then I asked for specific examples of what I could use to illustrate this. And I thought I might be able to use it if you came up with good examples. So ChatGPT listed three episodes and I searched later and these episodes did exist, but totally fabricated the quotes in terms of what data said. And they were really compelling quotes and they would have been excellent if they were real. That, that process, I think, that, that fact checking, we have to remember that ChatGPT isn't a knowledge model, it's a language model. So it, it's good at writing things, it's not necessarily good at fact checking things. And so there, there's lots of room for the intellect, there's lots of room for imagination and creativity. So is this different than using Qualtrics, SPSS, a calculator, anything else that we've used in the assistance of research and writing? Is it much different? I think that's the question that we have to ask. Thank you. Josh, would you like to add to that? Sure. Yeah. I think part of the fear from this comes from how it's brought to people's attention in online media, much the same as we saw in 2000 when the buzz was, all the students are going to cheat. You better buy our e-proctoring software, which as it turns out, didn't work and came with a seven figure price tag for some of the institutions. So if that's the first time somebody's heard of it, binding that with things like a stand of the essay. It's the long overdue nail in the coffin of post-secondary ed. It's the end of capitalism. When you hear it framed that way, of course, you're going to react badly. But coming out from the library field, we've seen information literacy evolve into digital literacy over the past 20 to 30 years, as far as being able to locate, evaluate, and use information. This kind of artificial intelligence seems to help with locating some information and maybe using it, but not as much with evaluating it. And the other question about the essay specifically has been asked in academic integrity circles for years now in regards to things like rephrasing sites and then contract cheating services like Che and even things like Grammarly. In the context of academic misconduct, something like these tools can be spotted by what we call the academic judgment of instructors who know their students' writing, especially at a college like ours when our, our big classes have about 30 students in them. And that's been the same for quite a while now. And we've seen here at ACC when students do what we call a discovery interview, if an instructor does think that some misconduct has taken place, the instructor can recognize that's not their writing. And that's not really the point where it comes from. So we, we try to focus on the behavior, not the platform, because they do come and go. Will we be talking about chat GPT in six months? Definitely not GPT three, probably four, but 
these platforms will come and go. It's that behavior and how people use them. That's always the problem for us. But other red flags as far as misconduct from uh, using these types of technologies have been sterile content. But that could just be a case of garbage in, garbage out, as they say, with more of a reflection of the person that's using this as a tool. Philip Dawson is someone we look to out of Australia quite often. He calls this cognitive offloading, right? So there's a time and a place for certain tools, like Alex was talking about a calculator, spell check using citation generators. Those can be tools in the right hands. But at the point of your lesson is to do a spelling test, probably not a good idea to have spell check happening. So that's something we keep in mind with these types of technologies. And then Lastly, like the misuse of these tools, I think really highlights the transformational versus transactional mindset that we often see as a problem in higher edit. People just trying to finish an essay, not wrestle with the topic and engage in what could be deep reading, thinking and writing. And so we're talking about how this can help automate the lower order tasks for people to free them up for some higher order thinking. I just think there's a danger in doing that offloading too early as far as students' careers. I can see why the K to six schools, for example, are the ones that seem to be most quickly banning this, right? School divisions are the ones that seem to be jumping on that. Whereas higher ed is a little bit more healthy skepticism. There's a way we could probably use this. You know, I want to ban it. It's going to be there regardless, but I don't disagree with the K to six system looking to stop students from using this. I was talking with someone who was wrestling with some of the same things and they were saying, I'm just going to have my students write reflective essays. So I went and I put in a prompt, write a reflective essay about teaching in grade six. And it totally made up a story about being in grade six. It, was like it felt real. So that idea of like knowing your students' writing can be difficult if your students have been using this from the ground up, right? You might not have a good sense of what their writing is. But I like that idea of paying more attention to the process and not just the outcome. And I think that's really a good place to, to anchor ourselves and on that point, Michelle, I think it's interesting that ChatGPT can write in the style of someone else. So if you load some of your work into it, it can actually write like you write some other fictional character or anything that it has access to. So that's, you know, so the reflective essays, whatever you put into it, they can reflect on those experiences. Like, I think that was the sort of the thing, right? If you want to know your your students are teaching and using something con contextual, it has to be from Regina. It has to be from your perspective. So there'll be things like that. So that even that is something we can't really rely on anymore. Uh, that's about the window. That's one less trick that we can think about. So really, I think that the urgency to get to a much more transparent and open and process-oriented writing process pedagogy, I think, is going to be really important. Do you want to talk to us about some of the ideas that you have, Alec, for using Chat GPT in the classroom? Where do you start? That, that's, I'm thinking about how I'm using it already because I find myself as a learner. I'm not taking classes or anything, but I'm constantly producing or reflecting on or learning about things. A while ago, I, I was, did an external for a PhD examination and I spent is like almost a 300 page document. So it took me about a week to, as an external to go through it and read it carefully and come up with comprehensive questions that I could use at the examination. And then this was like when ChatGPT was first out and it actually accepted a little bit more input than it did. So I took 
big pieces, big chunks of it, dropped it in there. And the comprehensive questions that I asked it to generate were much better than mine, which was really kind of sad. But I was thinking of that. I don't have to do this as an examiner. I could do this as a student. So I could up, upload my, or up, copy and paste in at this point. I'm sure there's going to be other services that you can upload documents. I think there are already and have it critique or help me improve my essay, not necessarily rewrite it, but certainly have it improve it. And I think the writing process is really important, but how often can we actually do that with a teacher? Like, I think it's very difficult to go to a teacher and say, help me with this essay to improve it, to do this better. As people like Minsky have Papert, for instance. Theorists have been talking for the, about this, the potential for AI to be a great engine for personalized learning. And I think that's one of the places I'd start is really look at the potential for this as a way of providing personalized learning. I went to a high school just when this came out, I think it was a week old, and we were doing mock interviews. They invited people from the community to help high school students prepare for job interviews. So we did that, which I think was really helpful, but then we started using ChatGPT as well. So the, there's a certain prompt that you can use. You can copy and paste it into the show notes if there are any, but it's something that allows you to be a, a position interviewer. So you choose a position, if it's a teaching position, if it's wh whatever it might be, and and to trigger ChatGPT to, in a con conversational style to ask you questions around a job interview. There's so many different types of prompts that you can put in that would support learning that would be like essentially having a one-to-one -one tutor with you at all times. So I think that's probably one of the places I would start beyond how a teacher can use it is how a student can use it themselves to, to empower their learning, to do things that they couldn't have access to, obviously, to ChatGPT or, or something like Notion or any of the other tools that are coming these days that can certainly support personalized learning. Thank you. Josh, you're nodding. Do you want to jump in there? Yeah, I agree on a lot of counts. Some of the ways I've heard about tools like this being used would be things like lesson plans. We've used it ourselves for case studies. Thinking about one of the services we have is called assignment individualization, which is easy for us to recommend as let's just make 30 different assignments, but that takes a long time and it's cognitively draining to think of authentic topics with different characters and things like that. It can, it could take quite a few days and yeah, we had this do it in a matter of minutes and came up with, I would say three quarters of the same examples that we had either manually thought of or looked up. So that was another great example. I've heard people use it to create multiple choice questions, but again, they know what makes a good or bad multiple choice question. So we're able to take the base basics that they got and tweaked them. But yeah, I like the idea of, of, uh, of it as, as like Alec was talking about that personalized learning, even just as a parent, my kids are already doing math that I haven't done since I was their age. So they, when they're asking me, what does this mean? Actually, last time I looked at it, I was in grade nine too. Having artificial intelligence provide practice questions and explain things in different ways, whether it's metaphors, you know, however a learner might best respond to. I think that's a great use of it. And not only for students, different levels, but there's a lot of different platforms out there that people can use. Michelle and I heard one together. ChatGPT 
is by far not the only one that's out there. And they all have different uses as tools and, and respond to different prompts. And I just see it as a new type of digital literacy that's going to evolve. So whatever we thought we knew about the internet in two, the year 2000 wasn't what was happening in 2005, definitely not what's happening now. We just happened to have watched this. All of us, I think, remember when the internet first came out and when we first got dial up and went from dialogue to whatever you might've had, AOL, all these different things. And that's, that just happened over a longer span. And I think maybe that's part of the discomfort is this is happening in smaller increments. And as soon as you get used to something, it changes. I can see why that would be unsettling, but there's new practices developing, which can be exciting. And I guess we'll get in, into some of the possibilities when it's not as exciting and maybe not as positive, positive as we unfold the discussion here. One of the things that I struggle with or I'm not very good at is bringing people, like inviting people into a project and helping them really see the benefits of it. I feel like I'm not, that's not, I feel like I send out emails that are like, hey, we're doing this thing. If you want to do it, then tell me. And that I don't provide enough details. So I asked it to write an email to invite students to volunteer on a project and uh, I had done my best to write this email and then I thought, I wonder what it can come up with. And it was way better than what I would have sent and right away got four students that were like on board. And I feel like maybe some of those tasks that are, I'm not publishing that anywhere. I'm not using it for anything, but it could save me a lot of time and do a potentially much better job than I could have done in the first place. So for me, I feel like that's where I see some potential I, I, I sort of last there. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Sorry. I think like with everything else, we become more flexible about how we think about it as we use it more, right? So we see more opportunities or more applications for it as we go along. And you can see that already that when it first came out, the rising about what it did to essays and pretty soon you saw teachers responding saying let's try to turn that around doesn't end because somebody learned how to write an essay with the internet and I think we're getting more sophisticated and more sophisticated with what we're using it to do. I think that if we think of the depth of the essay like, I think it opens us up. I think anything that forces us to change our pedagogy and to rethink how, what we value in teaching and learning is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it's great that we have to perhaps give up or rethink how the essay is. Yeah, you know, I've been looking like everywhere, like I'm more awake to the possibilities of thinking differently about how we might assess student learning. For instance, there's a TikTok personality that he's challenged to like, there might be tiny little clips of hockey games in like in some movie, for instance. And so people will find this little clip of hockey game in the background on the TV in the, in the middle of a movie somewhere. And they'll say, I will challenge you to actually find out which game this was from, what, who are the teams. And some of these are really obscure games. And it's interesting because he shows his work. Like he goes on TikTok and he says, okay, this one was a difficult one, but this is what I found out in 1974. There were these two teams in the league and they wore this jersey and this had to be this particular game. Like it, it's just showing 
the mental process, like the really deep process of learning something and then demonstrating how you know these things. And I think focusing on those types of skills, like really going into deeply difficult questions and and then demonstrating how you thought through a problem and making that incredibly visual and apparent to everyone because the essay is a black box like you can see what it ended up being but you don't know if the student really struggled with it if they had a difficulty teaching doing the essay how much support they did how it used so like we don't really know much about their learning we just know about a, a bit of the product and we can assess the product but we don't we can't assess the, the learning process for the most part unless we're really hands-in and working alongside students. So I think just looking around us and thinking, what are the possibilities of having tools like this and how will they push us to think differently about the things that we've assessed in the past? Another possibility, there's a, this huge area of prompt engineering. Like this is a term that you may have heard at this point, but prompt engineering is something that's it's been used around for in these types of natural language processing models. Essentially, it Josh mentioned garbage in, garbage out earlier, and it works on that idea that the quality of your prompt and how specific you are is going to really make a difference in, in terms of the output. And so that is, it goes beyond creating a Boolean prompt in Google. That was a, that's a great information literacy staple that you should know, but this is, this is even beyond that. In some cases, you use special parameters and, and that sort of thing. But really, it's like phrasing your question. It's finding problems. It's finding the problems instead of finding the solutions. Like finding the, finding a question, I guess, in that sense. And I think you and Macintosh talks about problem finding instead of problem solving. And I think that's part of this prompting process that is, it shows a lot of promise to me. Because really refining your language, finding the right ideas, really thinking specifically about what you want to know and what you want to output is a really important skill to have. And it's something that I think students will, will need to know, certainly in the future and with AI or outside of AI. That's a good point. It goes back to searching all over the place, right? I remember when I was first a university student and they had the books in the library where I had to look up and find the right search terms. And then it became like a database of search terms. And the better you were at creating or figuring out what the search terms were going to be, the better you were at doing the research. And this is not different than that. Yeah. And it's quite a, it's a higher order thinking most of the time. And quite often with students, I find that if they're not getting the results that they need, they're putting in the wrong thing. And maybe it becomes part of that has to enter as part of the curriculum that they need to learn how to use the tools. Yeah. And I think the idea that it's these prompts build upon each other, like that you can, it's a conversation with ChatGPT in particular. You can use a prompt that's contextual with the next prompt, like a, a Google search is a Google search. And then the next Google search has no relation to the next search, like in terms of the search results. I was using this the other day 
with instructors. Write a comprehensive lesson about quantum theory suitable for a first-year university physics course. Include outcomes and indicators. The lesson should follow principles of active learning. What it produced was amazing. Like, I, it was really good. It wasn't perfect, but like for to be generated in 10 seconds, it's pretty amazing. Then from there, generate an essay-based quiz based on the above lesson. Use a standard rubric table format. So it generates sort the a lesson with a rubric and so on. And you can even grade, you could write an essay based on that assignment. You can grade it just to see what comes back. The entire process of developing from lesson plans to, to assignments, to rubrics, that's all something that we can certainly do as educators. And that frees us up in a lot of ways. Like I, I would much rather review someone else's rubric, including AI's rubric, then actually develop one from scratch because a lot of the stuff is going to be very similar. And if I can just basically tweak it, I can simply say to ChatGPT, okay, I like this rubric, but change the third point to this or go deeper with this particular point. Like this, that's very powerful to think that we can actually do that and tweak things to exactly the way that we want them without having to do those things we can do already. You know, at that level, like faculty or students to some level, I think it's a really good point that Josh made that at some point we still have to learn to write the K to six. I'm not necessarily in favor of banning, but certainly guided use of these tools, I think is really important at that level and to ensure that we have uh, students that can write. But at some point when you can write and you can write well enough and you have the basics and the same for math and other subject areas that there are some core principles and tenets that you need to understand about certain disciplines. But from that point, how can these tools strengthen your ability to do those things? Like, how can it take you to the next level? It's a transhumanist idea that you can, um, you can go beyond. The, you can certainly improve incrementally over time, but with practice, but with some support, you can become even a stronger writer and so what if ChatGPT can ChatGPT or other AI can support that process a little bit? I think everyone's going to have this ability. AI is going to be embedded in everything. It's already in Bing. It's going to be in Google with Google Bard being released fairly soon. The API was released for ChatGPT, I think, just last week. So it's it's already in Snapchat, I believe, and it's going to be everywhere. There's no escaping this. It's not going to be if we ban ChatGPT. You know, we're banning every product out there or some other form of generative AI. As we do this on a larger scale, like more and more of us are learning the use of something like AI for generating lesson plans or for generating a syllabus or whatever the case is. If we do this on a large scale, are we going to lose some of our individuality or some of the things that make us like I'm thinking if everyone who's teaching graduate scholarly writing, for example, used ChatGPT and came up with something very similar in terms of a syllabus, then their students across the country are going to be all getting the same kind of syllabus. Because I had a very similar experience, like, oh, I'm going to see what ChatGPT is going to come up with. Oh, I like this and this and this. But if it's generating the same syllabus for a whole bunch of people, then we might lose something in that process. So I, wonder, I don't want to be too like doom and gloom, but just a thought. Yeah, like, I think that's a good point. But I'm wondering, like, how different a Psych 100 course is across the country. 
like I think there are certain courses that are pretty standard across. And if you add that and you have dominant textbook publishers and certain faculty that use certain textbooks, I think they're going to be very similar. I think in the niche courses, you actually, you know, you will certainly have more of a chance of that sort of thing. But I think for the, the standard large class size courses in uh, universities, they're probably already quite similar across the country. That's my guess. Yeah. And that's been one of the problems. Yeah. Now, Alex and Michelle with those large introductory courses, those ones are just rife with academic misconduct, right? Mm -hmm. If everyone's using the same textbook across Canada, those case studies in the back, as soon as they're published, they're compromised. And we've seen that over and over again. So the same methods that we had looked at and the same catalyst that we had hoped something like contract cheating was to look at redesigning classes like that. I mean, if people missed the kind of the boat in 2019 and 20 with that. Here's yet another example of why that should be changed because otherwise you're basically setting students up for failure, whether it's lack of creativity or just the answer can be either Googled or in this case, chat GPT, but we're looking at this in in one context and at the risk of sounding like a traditionalist, I would say like creative writing in other art has an important place in a lot of different cultures and looking at it in that regard, it's not necessarily, uh, we want more content or we're looking to refine a business. I, mean, I think there's an important place for creative writing in other types of art. And, and as Alec mentioned, these large language models have been around for a while and people have been asking questions about them or referring to them as a stochastic parrots, which makes me laugh. And I, I'd say as a music fan and someone who's played in bands, like I'll compare the content that, that can be created by artificial intelligence with what I'd call the sterility of digitally corrected product, which is created by producers and performed by actors rather than some kids who are obsessed with a certain type of music hammering out a bunch of songs in, in a garage or basement and then playing a local community center. I do think there is a, some part of our creative impulse, which might atrophy if everyone does end up relying on the same thing and not using it as a tool anymore, but letting, you know, the tail wag the dog, so to speak. Yeah, I think you're right, Josh. And I think, you know, Alec, when you were talking about that, I was thinking about your example, or Michelle, when you were asking, I suppose, I was thinking about your example of the rubric. And I was thinking, yeah, there are some really common things that if it was scholarly writing or the class that I'm teaching right now is a educational leadership class. There's some pretty standard things that I think most people across Canada would have on their rubrics or have in their outcomes for that class. But then I think some of the tweaks that I would make after it comes down is where you would get my personal style. And I think the same thing with thing that it's generating. I think it's human to push back at something that's being generated automatically for you. Yeah. And if you're a subject matter expert, you're going to bring in certain theories or scholars or into your work. There, there's certainly that, that individualization or the the originality of those instructional materials and assessments is certainly something you can keep. It, it'll just give you a bit of a easier 
easier way to, to begin exercises like content development. I'm doing a keynote coming up. And so I thought, what if this gives me, I, ha I have what I've done in the past, but I thought if you can give me an outline, here's the description of the keynote. I want an outline. I want, I was doing it in Bing. So I wanted actually resources to, and examples that I could use at certain thing at certain, in certain parts or, or parts of the keynote. And I was, it was good. I was really surprised as to how good it was. It was very formulaic, but it was very good that it gave me ideas that I had not thought of. And I think that allows me to grow because it would have, I would have otherwise done something very similar to what I know, but then it forces me, like it doesn't give me the answers. It gives me the idea of what I could cover. And then that makes, it pushes me into a place where I have to learn more about the, the area that it's expressed in the outline. It doesn't do all the work for me, but it gives, it gave me enough of an outline to force me to step outside of what I know already and move into what I need to know. And, but I didn't have to spend hours and hours trying to come up with an outline, which would probably be exactly what, like what I've done before. So I think it does have great potential for moving me out in moving out, moving learners and students and myself, others, academics outside of what we know already and to be, because it just, it's very difficult and time consuming to, to grow and to grow as a learner or as an academic. Uh, from a non-ableist standpoint, I think it's really important that we recognize also, especially when it comes to banning these tools, what does it mean to ban these tools when it actually allows for a more level playing field? Like I, I'm worried about if we decide, if, if ChatGPT becomes really expensive, if I don't think that's happening, but if it becomes exclusive to only people who can afford it and other people don't have access to this, what would that do? Like there's a hugely an uneven playing field as there is already, but if you have these incredibly powerful tools for content creation and for, for every day type of work, what does that actually do? And then in the classroom, what if we ban these tools that can be very helpful for the students from say a universal design for learning perspective? There's a tool called Otter that will come to Zoom meetings for you and summarize the Zoom meeting for you and give you a, give you the slide deck and you record things for you, give you the top points and action items in terms of what happened in the class. And what a fantastic tool for those who have exceptionalities, for instance, that might, might, and not just those with exceptionality, but anyone who, from a UDL standpoint, who might profit from having a certain media made ex expressed in a certain way to us. So I think there, there's so much potential for leveling the playing field with AI that allows anyone, because there are so many different types of AI that there, there's going to be something that can assist you in your learning in most cases. So any things that we need to look out for that you would say are dangers, the examples that we gave with the questions were data being collected from us privacy issues, anything like that, that. I would say the biggest one to me is 
what we've been seeing the last little while, the incredible rise of misinformation and disinformation and how that's just going to be the just a huge problem going forward in terms of like, uh, there's already been, and we can think about this from the regular everyday social media stuff that you'll see online and you won't know because it'll be very written, it'll be written very well because often in the past, things that aren't written very well, you can dismiss them pretty quickly as not well-researched or not well-written. And now you can create very compelling narratives and strong persuasive arguments with totally fake references. And unless you're checking them, you, you don't know whether the stuff is fake or not. So I think the information environment is going to be even more difficult to navigate. And that's just, I mentioned that's like the everyday, but everyday arena, but think about also academic writing. People have gone out there and found like an existing conference paper title in an abstract. And they've, in seconds, you can basically write another paper that might get past the reviewers, depending on the credibility of the journal. And so there's going to be this stuff out there that perhaps unscrupulous academics who want to shortcut their way to, to tenure and promotion, and partly due to the pressure of the, of the position and so on, might take shortcuts in terms of putting things out there and perhaps not fact-checking these things enough either. So I think as, as referees and academic reviewers, we have to be even more diligent in what's coming ahead in terms of lots of really compelling sounding and well-written articles, especially when we get into GPT-4. That's going to make things even more compelling. It's going to be, have better access to the internet and to even deep web resources. That's when we're, I think we're going to see some big problems. And so in, in general, I think information literacy is probably the, the biggest issue ahead. Down, down the road, and this is something that OpenAI, the company, is certainly aware of. Once everything is generated, you know, once there's more information out there in the wild generated from AI, you have to remember these language models have basically learned from human-generated content. But when all of the content in the future becomes AI-generated content, it basically learns from AI. So AI is learning from AI about AI. <laughs> and soon, I don't know, it's just this, it'll essentially garble itself to a point where it doesn't make any sense anymore. So we have to be very thoughtful about how much AI is in the wild and how it's being used in other AI models. And so that's why there's been a quest for the sort of the AI digital watermark, a way of telling AI-generated content from the other. It's also interesting that we didn't really get so much into academic misconduct, which that seems to be the big issue that it's dealing with. And tools like GPT-0 are out there to help. Because really, that's going to be a deterrent at best. That's going to be something that we use for punitive uh, examples of academic integrity. We really do have to turn the corner on some of the uses of tools like this. And detection can only get you so far. We have to rethink things. And so I'm glad the focus has been on that in this podcast. Yeah. From a copyright standpoint, and another thing we did talk about is the non-text, the other platforms out there on AI. So the visual AI platforms are already being sued for generating output, which is based on images that are under copyright protections. 
having a program like ChatGPT scour the surface web and Wikipedia and things like that is one thing, but if people upload copyright protected texts, there may be legal issues. And one of the things that, that I was reading in thinking about some of the issues is Policy Horizons Canada. They publish them, they call it the next generation of emerging global challenges. And Alec is onto one of them. In that one section they talk about is truth under fire in a post-fact world. And they talk about a growing distrust of, of government and mainstream media. And they talk about how people have relied on complete audio and video to disregard the, the legacy media with a 15 second clip and then Walter Cronkite or whoever telling, telling you what you should see there. And then I think that the other types of artificial intelligence really threaten this record of, of objective reality and further expose people to manipulation without facts. They also talk about how artificial intelligence could contribute to a global monoculture and loss of language and history. GPT-4 and others, they're going to have video capabilities. So video and audio, I think could be a real threat to human autonomy. Who controls technology that can make a video that look and sounds, looks and sounds some, like a, a person saying something that sounds neat or cool until it, it gets involved in a grandparent scam, which it has, right? So any little audio clip of a person that's out there is apparently enough to program a ne'er-do-well to then not call grandma or grandpa and say, yeah, I'm in trouble, or I'm a friend of your grandson. It now sounds like them and can carry on a whole conversation. It's just targeting really vulnerable people. So when people start denying what is real, wondering if something's a deep fake and well, did I vote for a person or a, an official intelligence video, I think that's pretty unsettling outside of the a pretty limited context of what, you know, fairly people who are well along in their careers highly educated in certain areas can think of using it as a tool, but I think the larger scope, there's people that see a lot of this as just commodity and product and content that's being created and don't really have an interest in whether people's credentials represent their expertise or whether higher ed thrives. That same report talks about people you know, who control these types of technologies might just be corporations and it's not going to be a matter of an arms race between identifiable countries anymore. It's pretty, actually pretty Star Wars-ish reading that report. I think for, from the things that you mentioned around video and audio being used to fool people, I think Microsoft has something like up to three seconds of voice. You can mimic that, but of course they don't want to release it for the power and the problems that it might bring to others. And there's been tools like deepfakes for the last little while that have been used to create video of other people. And it's gotten quite good. And there's other technologies that does the same. If you think about geopolitical threats, I think that's been mentioned in quite a few different documents around fake news and misinformation, especially through multimodal um, multimodal representations to really be a huge problem in terms of civil unrest and all that comes with it. Could you imagine like a, a very influential politician saying something like take up arms against your neighbor or that sort of thing, the government's coming to get us. These are all possibilities. And this is something that can, there are people out there that, that will certainly listen to, to be, to be incited by this type of communication. It is outside of education. There are some really scary possibilities unless 
there is better awareness of these types of things out there. Uh, so media literacy programs, I think, are more important than ever. Media and information literacy in particular. And we always had trouble when it's been suggested that we should, let's talk about fake news with students at a community college. Are we going to unpack that in an hour? I don't even think a person could do that throughout a whole graduate program. It's massive. I don't think there could ever be an objective consensus on what fake news is. And it's been often the thing that libraries come into and it becomes an add-on to everything else rather than being a, an important part in the, within the discipline. So I, I think that's a really important piece is that it's embedded everywhere, that it's a constant message embedded in all disciplines. Yeah, no, it's, we're often the domain of transversal skills, things like information literacy, things like critical thinking. And again, I think wondering if there's going to be a parallel, like the old style internet, is that where the scholarly information is going to live and text generated content? will be coming out of the, the AI and you know, it's hard to say what it'll look like down the road, but for sure, I think we're all agreeing that evaluating the information that we're getting, it's easy. I think for all of us to say, when we have some kind of subject matter expertise, we can recognize what it's producing, where it comes from, what, whether it gives us the sources or not, what's right or wrong about it. A 15 year old kid that's asking it a question. I don't think there's a single topic that they could do that with. Okay. Thank you. I'm a little bit intrigued that the discussions ended at the place that discussions about how bad technology is often ends. And that's with it's the human user in the end that is the real problem. And <laughs> how we use it can either be positive or negative. And we have to figure out how to protect ourselves against the people who are not using it po positively rather than seeing technology as the problem, I think. But maybe that's my own bias coming out as well. Um, I want to thank you for coming today and thank you for the conversation. If there's anything else that you'd like to add, you could, but I like the place that it got to and I think this is a good place to end. So. Thanks for joining us today on the show. And it was a great conversation. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for coming. 